sometimes when people say, you know, it's a roller coaster, and I think that's probably true if you said that, you know, sections of the track were missing and you were falling off the track and crashing into the wall, like that would be a probably more accurate description. You got to rebuild the whole thing to get back on. I'm Becky. And I'm Rowan. And welcome back to After Office Hours where we get to know engineering professors outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories of how they got to where they are today. Hi everyone, welcome back to After Office Hours. We have a really, really unique conversation for you today with Dr. Ken Gall. Yes, Dr. Gall is a professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering and Materials Science. He is an Associate Dean for Entrepreneurship in the Pratt School of Engineering, a professor of Biomedical Engineering, and also a core faculty in Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Yeah, as you can probably tell by all of those titles. And by the way, I left out, I left out a few. There's like 10 more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, he, Dr. Gall wears so many different hats on campus, and I think it's just really interesting because two of his, I guess you would call main hats or main roles on campus is um, not only conducting research in mechanical engineering, but also um, managing the companies. You know, over the course of his career, he started five companies, and it's just really amazing to see how someone like Dr. Gall is able to fit all of those things. You know, one could argue that those two things by themselves are careers on their own, how he manages that on a daily basis. And not only how they're like really separate things, but how they sort of, he makes them really connect. Yeah, for sure. In the podcast, you hear how he kind of sees um, both his research and his startups and his teaching kind of as one and the same. And we definitely talk a lot more in detail about all of those different topics uh, in the episode. It was great to talk to him, not only about his research and uh, entrepreneurship goals, but just to get a sense of his personality. So without further ado, uh, thanks so much, Dr. Gall. Dr. Gall, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We definitely want to talk a lot about your the, the different companies you started and your, your role as a researcher. But as we get started, I just would want to ask, what is the first time that you kind of considered yourself to be an entrepreneur? Good question. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, I you know, I would say it's a tough question because there's been some times that even after I started the business that I thought I wasn't an entrepreneur uh, when things went poorly. Uh, so, you know, really, you know, I, I, I kind of thought before I started my first business, I thought this is it. Like, I really want to be an entrepreneur. And I, I was at that point a faculty member for about five years. And I sort of sat there looking at the next paper I was going to put out and decided I really like publishing papers but I want to actually do something more with them. And that's not a criticism to people that only publish papers, but it was just, that's when I first struck me that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Wow. And so, yeah, I'm just curious to hear more about that story. Um, was that when you consider yourself, was that the sort of what led eventually to your first company or where did that lead and what did you learn? Yeah, it, it's a good question. I, um, that was a moment I was doing research on nickel titanium shape memory alloys. So these are materials that have very large strain deformations and that can actually recover their shapes. So you can bend them really large amounts. It's almost like metal rubber bands. Um, and I was doing that research, uh, was at University of Colorado. And I remember writing exactly, writing a you know, sort of a paper on this. And at this point I was just become tenured. 
I remember writing a paper thinking, you know, this material can be used in these different applications. And that was like the introduction to the paper. And I started thinking, who's going to do this? Like, like is it, <laughs> am I just writing this? Like, is someone going to read that and be like, wow, I, he's right. I should do this. And then I realized no one's going to do this. Um, <laughs> uh, and that sort of got me thinking that I, I might be the one to try to do this. And went, you know, got together with a couple of my students and decided to form a business. That was that was that was MedShape, which is my was my first startup. That's that's awesome. I want, I was wondering what kind of got you into the field of mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering um, in general. I see that you did your undergrad and your PhD in mechanical engineering. Where did that interest come from? That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you are both biomedical engineers, right? We are. Yes. Okay, got it. <clears throat> yeah, I'm like a fake biomedical engineer, so I've, I've, I've mechanical engineering background. It's like a secret. Um, you know, interestingly enough, so I was, you know, I went to become a mechanical engineer because I liked cars. Uh, so that was my thing as a, as a young, as a young kid. I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, different types of cars and wanted to work on cars and build them and design them. I thought that was, you know, I liked all the different areas of fluid mechanics and, you know, aerodynamics and, uh, engines and, you know, materials and lightweight. And so I liked all that stuff. And then I realized that, in the course of my undergraduate, uh, this might be a long answer, but I'm, I'll hopefully be the right one. Uh, uh, I, I realized in the course of being in undergraduate that I didn't like fluids as much as I thought I would, fluid mechanics, I just didn't. And then system dynamics, I also didn't like. I was like, this is just, I'm just not interested in this. And I really got into the material science side of things. And so then I you know, got, I ended up going to grad school. I was at Illinois at the time as an undergraduate, and I went to grad school at the same place, so uh, in, in Urbana-Champaign, and went to grad school to study these shape memory alloys. And a really fascinating material, it's, you know, it's a really interesting system. You know, it's, it's one of the, one, well, there's lots of materials that go with solid state phase change, but it's one of the few that, you know, just like a, you have something that changes from a liquid solid to a gas, these things undergo a solid state phase change, which allows them to remember their shapes, which is crazy. And I really got into that, and they were looking at two applications of that. One was structures, like could you put these in buildings and, and dampen you know, earthquakes and do all this active stuff with this, this behavior. And the other was cardiovascular stents. And it turned out that stents won. Um, and so people were, the stent industry, it was when I graduated my PhD in around 98, uh, shape memory alloys turned out to be a little too expensive for buildings uh, and they really went into the stenting area and that got me sort of pulled into biomedical engineering and I started realizing that there was a lot of really cool material science problems and mechanical problems in the human body um, and I'd always been an athlete and I was always sort of interested in human performance and other things related to that so I that kind of pulled me in and I never really looked back after that. Wow. And, you know, it sounds like, you know, we sort of um, did a little bit of research and we saw that you did your undergrad master's and PhD at the same institution. Um, while you were pursuing this interest, what sort of led you to come to Duke? Yeah, n no problem. I hope you're ready for a Go ahead. Answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> the rest of the podcast. Um, I, uh, I actually, you know, a little bit of a long road, but I, I when I graduated uh, Illinois, I, you know, I kind of had this interest in biomedical, and I took a small detour. I did a postdoc, so if you know, in, in grad school, you do a postdoc sometimes, 
at Sandia National Labs, which they make nuclear weapons, which is the opposite of how they're <laughs> yeah. doing. Um, and and it was it's a good it was an interesting place. I worked there for a year. Uh, I met you know a lot of great people, and we really did some interesting work on we were working on castings um, for weapons carriers. And then I took you know then I got my first job as a professor at uh, UC Boulder, and I was at UC Boulder for five years. Really got heavy into biomedical there. They don't have a biomedical engineering program. Georgia Tech had an opening uh, in, in mechanical engineering and material science, and I decided to move to that university. It was a lot stronger group in biomedical engineering. So I moved to Georgia Tech in 2005, um, started at Colorado in 2000, so that was about five years. And then I spent 10 years, about a decade at Georgia Tech, and it's a great university, great students. You know, I really had a good time there. Um, Atlanta's a good city. And in 2015, there was an opening for the chair of mechanical engineering and material science at Duke. And I was, I was actually contacted by a recruiter, which is more common in regular, you don't see that as often in academia. So I actually almost just deleted it because I thought, what is this? This looks like some kind of you know, garbage. I was gonna be sold something outside my office. Um, and so I looked at, and I responded and said, you know, I, I've always knew Duke. It has such an incredible brand name, you know, you know, for many areas. And, and I was a wrestler, so I wasn't a basketball fan until I came here. But uh, you can't, you can't be a wrestler and like basketball uh, and, and until now. Uh, so I actually knew of Duke. I knew that they. I, I looked it up, and I was like, wow, they have a great biomedical. I knew the hospital. We were actually doing a clinical trial of one of our devices at Duke, so I had you know that additional and that before I came here, that started before I arrived, and that I, I decided to come up and interview for the position, um, and it was uh, you know I met a lot of great people both in mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering. Really enjoyed the leadership. Uh, thought the hospital was amazing. Uh, really, a lot of opportunity. It seemed like it was a somewhat untapped area in the area I worked in, a little more on the implant side. The biomedical department you know, at Duke is a little heavier on, I would say, cellular gene sort of mechanism side. And so I thought this is, I could be a good fit here across both those departments, plus run a department. So I came, moved in 2015 to, to run the department. And I think the only way I would describe running a department is it's it's almost like getting a phd or doing undergrad you really love the experience but i wouldn't repeat it um <laughs> so <laughs> that's funny so, and that that's sort of how i ended up here nice well okay so i'm curious to see what what draw, drew you to academia in the first place i mean we talked to a lot of professors on this podcast so it's kind of assumed that people have a, a desire to go but generally speaking it's like not a very common thing for someone to go into academia after they graduate. College. Yeah, I, I would say there's two driving factors. I, you know, one was a little funnier and, and I, I would say I, I was influenced by my advisor. Um, you know, he, it, it's hard to know when you're a student, you know, what, you know, I liked research, you know, and I, I felt like I was a decent researcher. And, you know, I went and interviewed in, in industry and, and I came back and he said, you know, well, where were you? And I said, I was in an interview. And I told him that I interviewed at Caterpillar, which is a good company. You know, it's a big to make heavy equipment. And he got really upset uh, and <laughs> told me that I was going to waste my abilities if I went there. And, you know, at, at the time, I thought, this guy's a little crazy. Um, you know, but I actually realized in hindsight, he, he might have been right. Uh, I think I probably did have, you know, I have a passion for research. And, 
I really, you know, I, I really wanted to go. So it was that influence. And then also I just knew I loved working with students and I loved working on the cutting edge of projects. And I wanted to be around, um, you know, people that were at the beginning of their careers trying to become, you know, great at the things they were doing. And I, I always knew that I loved the university setting for that, those reasons. And so that, and then I had a little bit of me that was wanted to work in, you know, I, I wanted to kind of do a, I liked the industry side a little bit, and that kind of came out later. You know, I didn't realize at the time, but I realized later I could still do that and be an academic, and, and that would have to happen through startups. Is that love of research what keeps you in academia today? I mean, you've founded some very successful companies. What makes you, have you ever thought about throwing the towel and just saying, you know, I'm going to leave academia, leave my professorship. I'm just going to pursue in, pursue the startup or pursue the industry. Do you ever have those sorts of thoughts or have you ever had those? Yes, uh, often. Uh, so, I could, you know, usually when the companies are doing poorly, I'm thinking, this is so nice that I'm a professor. And then when I, you know, when I have a, a terrible thing happening at the university or there's just some constraints or students are doing poor jobs, then I'm thinking, I wish I wasn't a professor. So, you know, it, it sort of it moves around day to day, but actually on balance, you know, I'm, I'm, I took a leave of absence. Let me answer this way. I took a leave of absence from Georgia Tech for one year. Uh, when I when MedShape was first starting out, and we were really trying to build the business, and I realized that I enjoyed that, but I, I really missed the university side, and I wanted to stay in the research side, and I wanted to keep doing that. And I, I think the way the best way to describe it for me is I'm interested in startups, and I really love the commercialization aspect of all this, but I want to commercialize the most cutting edge things, and so I'm also interested in the research and. It sort of left me in this weird sprawl between both, and, and I, I really can't see myself leaving the university unless universities just decided they weren't going to do advanced research and allow people to commercialize it. You know, because you, you could you can work on the business side of things. I could become one hundred percent on the business side, but I think I would lose that edge that I bring to the businesses that's kind of developed by doing PhD level research with my students and having that. You know, and that's part of what I do at the startups is I help bring that aspect to them. You touched on this a little bit in your answer just now, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think is so special about academia in the environment there that's different than, for example, R&D at a large company in terms of research. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's the academic side is, is you know, and it, it's much more basic research. Um, you know, it's much broader platforms. It's, you know, things that are publishable and you're solving scientific problems that are, uh, you know, a little deeper and, and, and everyone has different definitions of that, right? Someone, every, some, to something people, a certain basic research problem looks applied, right? If you're a nuclear physicist, people that are working on, you know, molecular configurations think you're a, you know, they, they're, they're going to think that you're actually a, a applied person, right? Even if it's fundamental molecular physics. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a little bit odd in that sense, but I, I, I think that the, I really enjoy the basic research side at the university. And I think that's the part that's very different in industry. You know, I don't remember the time frame, but you know, there was Bell Labs and a lot of these big R and D facilities at university, at, sorry, at, uh, in industry that were doing fundamental research like that. And at some point they stopped. And I think what happened was, you know, they started focusing a little more, you know, on sort of, there were a lot of more public companies. They were focusing on how to, how to grow. They weren't, 
they weren't growing fast enough relative to their competitors. And so they started focusing on growth and cash flow and these. And then they started having to buy technologies, right? And if you look at medicine, that's how it goes. If you look at a company like Stryker, I mean, they have grown mostly through acquisitions, right? They just keep buying things. And if they spend too much on R&D, they won't have money for acquisition or, you know, really basic development. They won't have money for these acquisitions. And so I think that's sort of what happened is the really fundamental science, the high risk. Maybe there's a chance of it not paying off at all. Basic science came to universities and, and, and industry started shying away from that. It's also partly because federal funding, you know, I mean, without getting in too much of a diatribe of, of the long history of academia, you know, really federal money for research and academic institutions didn't start till after World War II. Right. I mean, it was that's when NSF was founded and then you started having these. And so that's a you know, it's not as old as universities are. Right. So universities have sort of become the set, the, the hub of that type of research over the last, you know, 70 years. And, and I think that's that's a good role for them. Yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. I think a lot of our listeners, too, can appreciate that. It's interesting because, as you um, might know, you know, from interacting with undergrads, especially a lot of us are torn whether we should pursue industry or going to academia. And it is very interesting to get your perspective as someone who is very involved in both and can find ways to balance that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And I think it's, it's something that can be done. And there, and there's, of course, there's, of course, companies that do more research. And, you know, I think in the biomedical side, you know, you see like, you know, gene editing companies, the, the companies that are a little more in some of these are probably doing some pretty fundamental research. Um, there's a, there's a, I'm not going to remember the name of it, but there's an interesting article out by a professor at Stanford that talks about the research, the publishable research done by startups like 23andMe and some of these others. And some of them do tons of basic research, but then there's some like a Theranos who, you know, like that's kind of a, a, a classic failure story. They weren't doing really anything, right? It was publishable. And, and you know, it was sort of, it was sort of said that the reason they weren't publishing it was also su- super secret, but the actual reason was is that they didn't have anything, right? So, but, that, but there are some companies in the biomedical space, certainly in the, you know, in, in sort of the app space and the sort of, you know, the Googles of the world that are doing probably more basic research than, than some people think. Yeah, speaking of those challenges or uh, bumps in the road that can occur when you're trying to sort of innovate in the medical space, you know, because a lot of the companies that you founded kind of focus on, you know, implants and translating sort of the research that you're doing into into the medical space. Um, what do you think are some of the challenges? Can you tell us a time of about a sort of a challenge that you think was like very specific to innovating in this space that sort of you had to overcome or because because I know that innovating in, in, in medicine in general, it can just be very different and challenging in its own ways compared to other spaces. Yeah, I think the one way I can describe it is like when you, you know, when you have a new function on your phone, you're like awesome and everyone buys it and, you know, it's, it's 100%. Like what, what can you give me as a consumer? And one challenge in medicine is it doesn't work that way. So like we, we launched a new product that, and this is just kind of an overall challenge. We launched a new product that was the first that could really, it was the first intramedullary nail that could adjust itself post-surgery. So when you were going to heal this uh, fusion site, the nail would actually shorten itself to accommodate for the patient's healing. 
and that would happen after surgery. Nothing on the market did that, right? Everything on the market was just static at the time. And this was probably eight years ago. And I remember as a technologist thinking, how could you not buy this? Like, how could you not like think this is better you know, than what's out there? And so of course the first challenge we faced is the FDA was like, yeah, this is way different. Like, so you're gonna have to run, you know, they told us they had to run all kinds of animal models and clinical trials and, and it wasn't the market that would have supported that type of stuff. So. Um, that was the first challenge with the new technology is the regulatory barrier. And then we got past that and I thought we're in the home stretch. Like we got, we definitely, you know, we got it through and then you realize you've got to manufacture it at scale. And, you know, there's a lot of quality systems and, and controls that you have to put around that you don't have to do in, you know, a phone, you know, and, and it's a less complicated system per se, but you don't have all that. And then we got it out to the market and, you know, certain surgeons were pioneers. They were like, wow, this will be great. But some were skeptics. They were just like, well, what happens if it smashes the foot? And, you know, we had designed it to be similar forces as they're seeing anyway. But, you know, people ask those kind of questions. And one thing that was, a, you know, really telling for me is we had a surgeon in Ortho Carolina, Kent Ellington, who he had a patient who had had eight surgeries uh, to try to get their to get their uh, leg fixed, and they sent him. He basically she was about to be amputated, and he's like, "Well, he's like, I'm gonna. Uh, there's this new thing on the market. He's like, this is your last shot. I'm gonna try this thing." And um, he used our nail, and it was it actually worked. It was the first time this it fused the bones, and this woman was able to avoid an amputation. Because you know, as a side note, when you have a if you have a really bad joint, eventually you have to fuse it. Right? And, and that works in the ankle. It's a little harder in the knee because then you have a straight leg. Obviously, that's much more difficult, but if it really have a problem. So the reason I told you the thing about uh, uh, Dr. Ellington is that you know what happened then was that happened, and then his story slowly gets out, and then we start getting more users. And that process, I thought that would take like, I thought it'd be like the launch of the new iPhone. Like we would get that process out and you know, everyone would be like, oh, it's the best thing since sliced bread and we're all using it. That process took like eight years. <laughs> so you have to have the patience to be able to wait for that data to come out and wait for the, and, and biomedical is, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's people willing to take risks, but you have patients' lives at stake. So it's, it's a healthy risk. You have to have an upside to that risk that's going to help the patients and it takes longer. Yeah. So I was really interested in your interactions that you described as an engineer and entrepreneur with clinicians. And, you know, of course, in every field, in every movement, I guess there are traditionalists, there are pioneers, and there are people who fall in the middle somewhere in there. And so, you know, I wanted to ask more about what your experiences have been like with clinicians. And I guess specifically at Duke as well, since there seems to be so much collaboration in particular at this institution between the engineering school and the med school, um, have you, I mean, I'm sure if you faced uh, anything and everything in between like a lot of pushback to people loving your idea. How have, can you tell us what you've experienced in that regard? Yeah, I, you know, 100% all over the place. You know, it's, it's, you never know what you're gonna get. It's like a, when you show up for, you know, meeting with surgeons and I've had just, and this is not me being just biased, but I've had incredible interactions with clinicians at Duke. You know, we've, we've been working with a bunch of them. I've worked with Dr. Sam Adams for many years, uh, the foot and ankle surgeon and, uh, Mark Easley and some others there, and I've worked with uh, Will Ewart, who does cancer uh, osteosarcoma. Um, we're working uh, Philip Horn on the spine side. So there's a bunch of surgeons we've worked with over the years, and that, that's just a small cross section of them. But uh, at Duke, and they, they've been incredible to work with. You know, 
and I think partly because the Duke surgeons are great clinicians, but also they are pioneers. They want to try the best therapies, and Duke has a history of taking, you know, calculated and careful risk, but things that will help patients, and that's what makes it a really great institution on the medical side. Um, I have run in, you know, in the field to surgeons that I, I, I will use no names here. Uh, I've run into surgeons in the field where I think I would never get a surgery from this person um, under any circumstance. Um, you know, I, I've run into ones. I remember one particular that was, you know, I came in and, and when I first met him, he gave me a, about, a, about a 15 minute lecture about how all I cared about was making money and that he was an academic and that he uh, was just cared about publishing and that was it. And then when he stopped to breathe, I was like, do you know I'm a professor of mechanical engineering? <laughs> and he had done no research on me. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's like a, you get things like that where you think, why am I doing this? Uh, but then, you know, but that's, a, that's kind of far and few between. You don't see many like that. They, they sort of make you laugh when it happens. But... Um, but otherwise, we run into a lot of good surgeons. There's there's some that are not pioneers. They you know they want to wait a little for for more data, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's their surgical practice, and they, they wait. And we uh, we work with some of them too. It just takes a little longer for them to adopt some of the newer things. But you know you certainly don't want someone that's going to try anything just to try it either. You know we like the ones that think through it. And often, if someone's unwilling to, if a surgeon's unwilling to listen to some of our technology base and understand why we did what we did, that makes me nervous because they they might not be the right choice. You know, and we work with you know we work on the 3D printing side now. You know that's our company in Durham and. You know, those surgeons, there's some cases that are high risk. You know, these are patients that have no other options. They might have, you know, lost, you know, a huge part of their bone to an automobile accident or cancer or something. And, and you know, we, I want to work with surgeons who tell the patients, you know, this is, this is the best option you have. This is a new technology. Here's the risks. Here's the benefits. And, and that's who we sort of gravitate to now. So earlier you, you kind of mentioned some of the later steps in the process of uh, developing a technology and starting um, a startup with getting FDA approval and getting, you know, public approval. What is like the beginning of that process look like? So after you kind of described earlier, you had, you uh, wrote your paper and you, you had some applications in mind, but what, what, were the, what were the next steps you took after that to make that idea into a reality, into a real business? Yeah, you know, we there's there's kind of two paths to that. One is what are you doing to start the business and finance it and do these things and I'll handle these two separately. And then the second is sort of what do you do on the product development side? And so let's talk a little about the product development side first. Um, and, and that side, you're really, you know, in biomedical, you have to build a quality system. So you've got to find someone that knows the quality system and knows regulatory. So we used consultants at first, and some of them were terrible. And we ultimately landed on someone that was pretty good. And he helped us build our first quality system. And then that we built a product around that. And then you're, once you have a quality system in place, you're then trying to find where's the best beachhead market? Like where, where is the market that you would put your product out first? And we kind of, some of it's serendipitous because we were working with some foot and ankle surgeons already and, you know, but we also had, you know, had talked to them. So we kind of go out there and you talk to 10 surgeons and 20 surgeons and you say, this is what we're thinking. And 
you know, you start to realize that they're all excited about the idea, then you have the right market and you, then you start the product development process and designing the device and then getting towards the regulatory clearance. That's kind of the, you know, you're, you're really trying to get surgeon buy-in before you start that design process of your product. And that, that's pretty common in the industry. Um, and then the second, the second is like, how do you start a business? You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff and, and we, you know, that, that's another whole sort of can of worms, but you're, you know, you have to decide how to finance it. And, you know, there's different regulatory paths, right? And that's your first question you're asking, which is, is this a, you know, a, just a, a simple class one device that's going to just be put out there, right? You know, some kind of thing that doesn't have high regulatory risk that's not going to cost a lot. You're, you're probably going to possibly bootstrap that business or go to friends and family, Investors, you might need fifty thousand dollars to do that. One hundred thousand. Class two devices require a five ten k. You're going to need, you know, roughly a million dollars to get that through. When you think of all the regulatory, all the testing, all the personnel, all the quality system, and then a class three is like a PMA type device, pre market approval. That's that's going to require a big business. You're going to need a venture capital to fund that. You know, you need some big institutional financing. Um, I, I really never liked the venture capital approach, so I didn't want to work on PMAs because they felt like you were just sort of, they owned your business, and then if you did well, they made a bunch of money, and if you did poorly, uh, the business fell apart. And, and so I, I just, it wasn't that interesting to me. Uh, so we went with the sort of middle path, and then we raised friends and family money, you know, and, and I, I brought on a good CEO, Kurt Jacobus, who, who I've worked with now for, for a long time, and we were students together, and you know, we've, when he first started, he's like, you know, he looked at the business and we had, I think we had like $1,000 in the checking account. And he's like, this isn't really a business. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I appreciate that. And so we, we immediately said, we got to go to friends and family and raise some money. And I thought, this guy's crazy. Like, I, I don't think that's a good plan. But he was right. You know, we went out and we went to friends and family and raised some money and started our process that way and then found some really good uh, groups of people to, to invest in the business. I, it was mostly funded by, our, my business has been all angel financed. Uh, so I've not used in, institutional investors and um, that, that's been, you know, there's good and bad things about that. That's really cool. I, I was always wondering how people take ideas that are developed in the academic arena and translate them to industry, like what that process is like and if that's allowed and, and how that works. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, and it differs a little. So undergraduates, you own your intellectual property generally, so you can kind of just do it, right? You, you have the intellectual property you could go. Uh, on a, for faculty and uh, postdocs and staff and graduate students, that's, that's intellectual property. It's owned you know, by the Bayer-Doyle Act. That's owned by the university. And... You then the university has an office of licensing and ventures, and it's certainly allowed to start a company. You have to convince uh, OLV uh, over there, which we have a, a great, great OLV at Duke. I think they're really, really one of the best. Um, you have to convince them that you want to license it into your new startup, and they'll, you know, of course, have a natural pushback. They want to make sure your startup's real and you can build something. Um, and so that's the sort of first. That's the first step. And then if they agree to license it into your startup, and that usually happens in, in concert with funding it. They don't want to license it to something that has no funding, but you kind of need the license to get funding. So there's this awkward dance where 
you don't have either thing and you're trying to get both happening. So you're kind of doing that simultaneously. But that's allowed and expected, not, I wouldn't say expected, but it's allowed at Duke and all universities. That's, you know, one of the outcomes. The universities, you know, they, they don't just have, the Bob Doyle Act's interesting. It's a, you know, act of Congress. They don't, they don't just have the right to IP. They also, universities in that, in that, in that uh, kind of legislation, they have the obligation to try to commercialize. And so it's really, I think universities need to either license or start companies to, to take their technologies to the marketplace. That's part of what the research investment is for in the first place. Wow. And, you know, I know that, um, as you described before, it seems like a lot of your sort of ideas are sparked by your sort of innate curiosity to do the research that you do. Have you ever had any ideas or do you have ideas that sort of don't come from your academic space? I mean, and do you, do you just ever, you know, like walking down the street or just taking a walk or at your house, like think of an idea that's just sort of not related to your research and do you ever do anything to pursue that? Or is it mainly just sort of from um, your academic um, role into the in, sort of commercializing product? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I'll, I'll, I'll answer with a small story and then tell you why I, the answer to that is, is no. Um, when I was a graduate student at uh, Illinois, uh, there was a, they had a, uh, you know, the, this is going to date me severely, but when I was a graduate student at Illinois, they, they, you know, there was a guy in our, our lab who was really constantly showing us stuff that was useless. Um, you know, he was, he was like, look at this. I can, you know, I look at these dance moves I can do, or I can make balloon animals. And these are real examples, by the way. I just, it's, and it, maybe it's great. Great stuff for somebody, but it was stuff I, I wasn't super interested in. You'll see where this is going in a second and why this is an answer to your question. Um, and, and I remember one day he said, I want to show you something on the computer. And I, brought, I went to the computer and he said, look, you can look up people's numbers. You can look for information and you can go on here. And I thought, this is so dumb. And, and I, I, it was, I think it was heavily biased by my, him already showing me a lot of bad things just to give myself some credit. Uh, and so I, I, I looked and I said, I don't understand who's ever gonna use this. Well, as you could imagine, if you know the history of the internet browser, he was showing me Mosaic, which actually was developed at Illinois and ultimately became Netscape. Um, and so I saw this early version of this and my vision for it was zero. I had absolutely no idea that this would become probably one of the biggest things I would ever see in my lifetime. And I was shown, you know, very early stage. And so I figured out, I, I, the reason I brought that up is I, I, think, I think in the biomedical and material sphere where I have my core expertise, I can see very far out. I can see things people can't see. And, and I think that's what helps me innovate and build with companies, but that doesn't apply to other areas. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, so I, I, I'm not that creative in other spaces. I mean, in, in that, you know, I'm giving you one example of my worst creativity moment ever, right? I mean, I looked at what, what became the internet and said, this is terrible. Um, but I, I think that for that reason, I don't walk around kind of seeing things and thinking, ah, oh, let's change this. I'm not a, I, I'm an in, I'm inherent, like, I kind of innovate right in that sweet spot, but I don't really get outside of that. I, I, I'm not that creative outside of the biomedical space. I've sort of channeled all my energy to that. 
I know that's a really long answer to the question. No, yeah, I, I think that's great. I, I appreciate you telling us the story because it, I think it's also really cool that you've, you know, you identified that. I mean, I think that it would be really hard if you hadn't identified that and you'd sort of kept trying to go down that path. And it, I suppose having done so has led you in the right direction, definitely. I also don't think you were the only one to uh, veto the internet in the early days. <laughs> yeah. There are plenty of people who saw that and thought it was a dumb idea. Yeah, and I wish I could recreate the timeline because I think it was probably within a year that Netscape was valued at a billion dollars <laughs> in this or some huge, maybe 10 billion, I don't even remember. It was so soon after that, but I was actually seeing, you know, I was seeing that mosaic, which is a really early version of it. His friend was a computer scientist. I forgot the guy's name, but he's, he's well known for the founding of Met Netscape. <laughs> that was it. I was seeing the first thing, like, check it out. We got this cool thing. Wow. Okay. So we've talked about your research kind of big picture. Um, but if, let's say you were on NPR radio and they asked you to describe the scope and impact and what you do in your research, uh, how would you answer to that? It's a great question because I think that's a challenging question for some people to answer and, and that's one that drove me to kind of do entrepreneurship, you know, because, you know, publications are often measured by who cites them and who builds upon them. And it's sometimes hard to trail, you know, the re you know what's had an impact, right? I mean, there's some very fundamental research that's impacted something where the basic researcher never knew it would do that. Um, so it's you know hard to answer in that sense, but in my case, you know I, I think that by doing some of the entrepreneurship, I think we've we've done a couple things that are sort of unique, that have had you know societal impact. You know we've really brought to the table implants that can actually adjust themselves in the body. You know, and I think that's that field is only growing now. So I think it's you know there's a there's a question as to you know in ten years or twenty years will. Will we ever? Will metal implants all be, you know, ones that can reform themselves inside the body to adjust to what people are doing? And that started out a small market, and I think it's gotten much bigger. You know, and, and you know, in hundred years or to, I mean, who knows? You know, maybe metals maybe out of the body, but you know, I think we've started that. We've also worked on some stuff. We had a company that was acquired by Nuvasiv that was a spine company that. You know, we figured out a way to trick the body to attach itself to a plastic that was synthetic that it didn't the body didn't know you know knows it's synthetic and wants to surround it with soft tissue but we figured out a way to trick the body into attaching that and that's i think brought about a whole scheme of ways of thinking of you know getting the body to integrate materials synthetic materials that you that are not natural and you know i think we've been we've been putting materials in the body for a very long time but i think there's a question of some people have, there's different camps, right? Some people think synthetic materials will be out of the body. They'll, eventually we won't put them in, but we'll, we'll figure out ways to regrow everything naturally. But I actually have a little bit of a different point of view and, and you know, I, I may win out or lose out. We don't know yet, but my view is why don't we find ways that the put in materials that are better than what we manufacture ourselves that actually can improve the body and the body actually works with them to put in things that are better than what we started with. Why do we have to return to what we had? Right. And so, you know, and so that's, you know, again, two different schools of thought, you know, but that's and I think we've started down some of that path and some of the materials we've created in, in the business. And then, you know, I think the last is, um, you know, in this 3D printing space where, you know, if you look at classically at, at implants right now, what, what happens is people. You know, they make an, an implant that's sort of based on the average anatomy of 100 patients. 
And then they give it to a hundred different surgeons that all use slightly different techniques or have different preferences. And what we're trying to do on Restore3D, which is our newest business, is how do we create implants that are actually either designed for that patient's very specific biology, and that's not just their anatomy, but also you know, how do we texture the material the right way so that their cells respond to it, right? Some, some, people, some people's bone may want to grow in a very open scaffold. Some people's bone may want to grow into a scaffold that's very, you know, small, small lattice. Or how do we alter implants so that surgeon A and surgeon B don't have to use the same generic implant? It's kind of an overused term, but it's like mass customization, right? How do we actually go after this? And this involves a lot of different stuff. And I think if we can achieve that, we'll have changed medicine. Um, in this last business, It'll, in, in specifically on the implant side. You know, it will be truly personalized implant medicine. You know, you could imagine a situation where eventually we'll, we'll have the, you know, we're building up data sets of, you know, people's anatomy. It's all de-identified and, you know, put through the right filters and everything, but we can actually quickly identify, you know, 100 patients that had a similar deformity and then have a computer completely readjust and propose an implant for a patient that has a new deformity. And so I think that's, you know, that sort of brings together artificial intelligence and me machine learning, and then marrying that with 3D printing allows you to then make that part, you know, so that, and, and I think that wasn't all, all of that was not possible, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So we've been working with some of the people at Duke, like Guillermo Sapiro and people that do facial recognition to, you know, for autism and things to do uh, bone recognition and, and can we actually use that to try to then design the implants we print. So I think that's, I know that was a lot of stuff, but uh, maybe some of the things I think could have big societal impact. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and when you're describing this, um, the scope of your research, you kind of span across several different uh, academic fields between uh, like cellular biology, it seems like mechanical engineering, uh, biomaterials, artificial intelligence. How do you go about learning about all of these different new fields it seems like you kind of pick up new things as you've progressed through your career how do you go about learning these new skills yeah uh thank you yeah it's a well i'm better at picking those up than i am internet uh obviously so but i i you know i don't learn I'm, i've gotten old enough where i don't learn them that much i try to find students or collaborators that want to learn them more and, and or have more time to learn them uh, so we, we find the right collaborators. And so I'm, I am at heart a mechanical engineer who does, you know, you know I, I'm an expert in processing of materials and the behavior of materials. So if someone tells me I want my material stronger, I'm the person to go to. Or I want my material to react this way, I, I do it. And then we find the collaborators for the cellular side and the body tissue side. So that's just not something I know as well. We've worked with a bunch of great people here at Duke. Um, just started, you know, different collaborations across campus. And same on artificial intelligence. I'm even worse off there because it's a space I know less, but I, I realize what it can do, I think, in medicine. Yeah, it's, it sort of sounds like you're involved in so much. And, um, you know, it's exciting to hear you talk about Restore 3D again, because I, I remember I took uh, Dr. Collier's class last year. I think you were a guest lecturer for one of the uh, our classes and you talked about how I think like a specific case where you were engineering an implant and how do you sort of what percentage of the time do you spend thinking about your interest in an academic way versus on the commercial side and how, how do you like balance those two things I mean they, they both seem like full-time jobs yeah I, you know it's 
you know, the, the university, it's a good, it's a good question. I, I do spend, you know, there's a, there's a big question at the university too, is how much time can you spend doing those things, uh, which is, you know, officially a day a week. And so, you know, I, I am probably spending 20% of my time on startup things, but I also have, you know, the summer and other times when I'm not in, you know, official appointment. So I'm, I'm on a nine month appointment, just like many faculty. So you know, if you balance that over out, if I'm 20% during the academic year and full-time, you know, doing startup stuff during the summers, you know, you end up with on average working, you know, about half your time on each thing. But, you know, it's hard to define too. One of the interesting questions is if I go to a conference on, you know, the AI design of medical devices, is that my academic hat or my entrepreneurial hat, right? You know, where, where do I... Where does that fit, you know? And I usually have, you know, I usually traveled to those types of things. Well, now I have not been doing that, but <laughs> when that when that used to exist, virtually traveling. Yeah, yeah, and I haven't got into the virtual conferences yet. I, I know they're doing them, but it, for some reason, it's missing something for me. I'm I'm hoping they just come back. It's it's like I like to be with people. So um, I when I travel for something like that, it's got both hats on it. So it's hard to decide what am I doing? Which, which one is the one that I'm, I'm there for? On that, on that same note, it seems like you have a dozen different hats that you wear from uh, being in the entrepreneur sp- entrepreneurial space at Duke um, and your role as a mechanical engineer and your startups. How, how do you, I guess, where do you find the internal motivation to, to continue pursuing all of these different avenues at kind of full speed? Um, because I mean, it just, it just seems like a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think where, when it gets hard for me is if I, if I don't have good people that I can work with and I've, the way I, a way I do it honestly is I, I find really good motivated people, you know, of all types of backgrounds and particularly trying to help, you know, younger engineers and younger scientists, you know, pursue their dreams either in grad school or in, as, you know, as workers in businesses and, you know, I think that's what keeps me able to do it all because I, I try to really go after those. And our businesses also have a model where we give ownership to all, a lot of the employees and, and, you know, a lot of the people that come in early particularly. And we give people options to take, you know, ownership versus, versus pay. And, uh, you know, it's not an old model, right? That was a Silicon Valley model for many years, except for you got zero pay on all ownership. Uh, and that, that sometimes didn't work out. But you know, we, we're a little more balanced, but, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I think I'm energized by watching people build their careers and, and that, that helps me to sort of do more stuff. I get to do a little more advisory role. You know, I'm, I'm obviously gotten worse and worse at the ground level thing. I can't run a test machine. Um, you know, I, I can't probably use Excel anymore. Um, you know, I've gotten basic stuff I've gotten really bad at as soon as they've, you know, made everything bad, but I can, you know, kind of then help run the research and, and run the things that they want to do. And so, so it really is leveraging people. I think if you think you can do everything on your own and, and you know, and if you're the type of person who never wants better people around you, you know, people that could be better than you were, you're always going to struggle. And, you know, and I, I try to look for people that I, I look at them and say they, they can be much better than I was, you know, at that stage. And how can I improve them? Among those teams that you work with and the people that you um, work with and are inspired by and inspire, um, where does your sense of fulfillment come? Uh, does it come from, I guess, constructing a really beautifully designed product, the impact on patients that you get to serve, 
like, I guess the sense of adventure that you feel, it must be sort of, there's definitely like a thrill that's not captured by um, other careers in entrepreneurship. Uh, yeah, where does like your sense of fulfillment come in? I think I do, you know, it, it really does come from the patient impact first. So I really like that we build products that are helping patients. And, I, and I've always loved that aspect of biomedical engineering, right? It, you know, you can, it's a single person in a single system and you can say, all right, I did a surgery on, you know, this person. I, I, I'll never forget the first time I was in the OR actually to see one of our products put in because the first time I ever watched one of my own products go into a person in the OR, the surgeon looked at me and said, I hope this works. This is my sister-in-law. And I thought he was joking. So I laughed and he said, I, I said, I know that sounds funny, but this actually is my sister-in-law. And I was like, I, I immediately, my stomach just dropped. And I thought, I hope this does work. <laughs> like, and why? And then I started thinking, don't they not supposed to do surgery on relatives or, um, so, but like, you know that so that was a little odd but that that's the that you know obviously after that is the high of knowing you created a product that that helped that person and did something and and that that part i like the most i have a you know a close second is i'm very competitive and i i kind of in a in some way love that the larger companies aren't doing you know more advanced research and aren't doing they don't have the competitive edge and so i I like the fact that we can take business from very large, old, established businesses that are not, you know, this is like the business side of me that are, you know, kind of doing their same old stuff and they use their big sales force to try to, you know, outsell you, but we just have something fundamentally better. And that's really exciting. And, you know, there's, we have some companies that we think are copying now are going to start copying some of our devices and, you know, that's a that's a challenge as a business but you know as an as an engineer an entrepreneur it's the it is truly the you know the sort of the best the best way to be you know it's sort of the imitation issue right when someone starts imitating what you're doing you know that it's flattering right so there you know i think that that's that's kind of been exciting to see you know we might have changed some of the way other big businesses but i like competing with them because i think they always think um and I know this is an odd way to get satisfaction, but they always think like, we're big, you'll never take our customers. Like we have all the, you know, we've got all the connections. And what I really like there is that, you know, I don't have to steal a hundred of their customers. I can just take them one at a time with better data and better clinics. So it, that, that part's also satisfying. That's awesome. One of the things you mentioned in that was uh, how you um, found fulfillment from kind of mentoring, mentoring students and helping them uh, grow in their careers. What, what is a piece of advice you would give to a student who's inter- interested in starting their own company? Yeah, and thank you for bringing that up. That is also on my satisfaction list. Uh, so I didn't want to leave that one off. Um, that, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's been really incredible to watch some of the students and employees that I've worked with, you know, kind of grow on and do things and, you know, start their own businesses and do things. So, um, you know, I think that you kind of gave me the advice, you know, the advice question, which is always a hard one, hard one to do, but... Um, you know, I look back at myself and starting a business and I think I was so naive to how difficult this would be. Um, and you know, and and I think that was good actually. Um, I think I've gotten a little older and crustier and if I like moved myself back to that point, I'd be like, I'm not going to do this. That was miserable. But on the flip, you know, I think it's, it was more rewarding than I thought it would be. Uh, you know, I, and, and so I think my advice to everyone is it's going to get way worse than you ever imagined. And this is assuming you want to stay the course, right? So 
you know, there's sort of this overarching advice, which is don't give up, right? It, it's it's going to get bad. You're, it, it's really going to get, you know, there's going to be times when you think it's, you're not going to make it and you got to kind of come into work every day and try to make it. And But it's also going to be way more rewarding than you can realize, you know, and, and you know, to, to have your own venture and to build your own business. It's a different path than a lot of your peers will take. Um, and, you know, it's not for everybody because you got to be willing to, do it, and you know. I think <clears throat> sometimes when people say, you know, it's a roller coaster, and I think that's probably true. If you said that, you know, sections of the track were missing and you were falling off the track and crashing into the wall, like that would be a probably more accurate description. And you got to rebuild the whole thing to get back on. So, you know, it, it that that's I know that's sort of generic <laughs> advice, but I I think that's that's what I would like to tell myself. You know, is is keep pushing. It's worth it, and and it's it's hard too because some entrepreneurs get lucky and their reward comes quickly. You know, my second business, we built it and it, you know, it built for, it was on the market for about six months and the, we got into a large bidding war between a couple of very good, you know, capable strategic companies and exited for a very large amount of money. And I think if I would have done that first, I'd have been like, this is great. Like, I'm just going to do this, keep doing this. But it was my second business, so I knew it wasn't all that easy. And so you do have to be a little careful, too, as a young entrepreneur. Sometimes you get in the right place at the right time. You think it's all of your decisions that made you happen, but it might be a little bit of luck. So, Yeah, and as you think on sort of wrapping up the last couple of questions here, um, as you think yeah. on your own difficulties, is there a particular time that sticks out in terms of a time that you failed and you, you really – you know, had to sort of look, look within yourself or look to someone else to really uh, deal with that. And what did you learn? Yeah, we, we, you know, we, we made some bad, we made some bad hires and some bad assumptions in some of our startups, you know, and, and this is particularly in the first one, you know, where we thought that, you know, we believed a certain person might do certain things. And, um, you know, and I, and I made some errors in terms of which products we should put out, you know, early days. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> And I think if I understand your question right, you know, the, the, the thing you can, the only thing you really can do is just fully accept that you blew it, uh, you know, and that you're going to have to move on and try not to make the same mistake. You also have to remain open to it happening because, you know, you can't avoid all the things. So it is, it is truly as cheesy as it sounds. It's kind of, you got to just get up and keep going because, you know, that, you know, I think for me, that's a little bit more how I think about it. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, and I don't want to get too much of the details because it may be revealed too much, <laughs> but it's, it's like, you know, you know, you, you just can't avoid, you know, making some of the mistakes and, and I, and I try the best I can to, you know, come forth when I think I've made one of the mistakes and say, look, I blew it. I should have, you know, we should have zigged and we zagged, you know, and, and, I think that, you know, that's that that as a leader is more important as you get farther along. And and certainly certainly when you're when you're young, you you gotta kinda fail fast in these things, right? You gotta build your startups, you know, and you gotta when you fail, you gotta fail quickly and, and, and keep moving. Wow, okay, so as we wrap up, we always like to ask these two rapid fire questions. The first one is if you have read any what what book you're currently reading right now or if you've read any interesting books that you would recommend? This will be the worst rapid fire answer because I haven't, I read a lot of books, but you know, it's gonna sound terrible when I answer this. So one of the, one of my books I think is the most interesting I've ever read is Why We Get Fat. And I know this sounds so ridiculous and I'm not trying to make any comments about 
anyone's body type or any of this. It's just written in a way that is so fascinating because it's by an author named Gary Taubes. And it's, he's, he kind of covers the science and a bunch of examples of why people's misconceptions of how they eat and their diet and all this, how it, how it has things. It's a really interesting book, actually. Um, so I don't know if that's the type of answer anyone's looking for, but that, that's it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad we asked this question now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I hear something was so much better, but unfortunately, that's what I feel. No, it's just, it's interesting. You know, we're going to have, the reason we asked, we're going to have like a, a book list that we get from all our guests and the, the more diverse, the better, in my opinion. Yeah, well, that'll do it, <laughs> you know, and, and don't let the title be a deterrent. It's not a meant to be a, you know, a, a thing about people's body types or to say anything bad. It's, it's more just, I think people struggle with, you know, how they should be eating and doing things. And I just found it so interesting that the examples he uses and things like that. Yeah. And one more question, it's completely unrelated, but, uh, are you a coffee? Maybe it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you a coffee or tea drinker? I drink neither. Neither. Well then what's your go-to beverage? Water. I'm, I try to make it water. Um, um, he read, he read the book. Yeah, that's right. Read the book. You'll be drinking only water. No, I, I, uh, it wasn't always that way, but I've, I've tried to gravitate towards water mostly. It, it, that is super exciting, I know, uh, but that's it. That, that, that's what I do. Solid. I like it. Thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us. This was an awesome conversation, and we really appreciate your time. Sure, no problem. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Wow, that was definitely one of our more unique episodes that we've had so far. Yeah, seems like what motivates him is not only, he, he draws his motivation from a lot of different things, right? I think it's not only helping patients um, by translating his work, but it's also just, I think, that thrill of starting a company and taking that risk, you know? So it's just very interesting to see how multifaceted that motivation is. Yeah, it, it was great to hear about how he started his companies and lessons he learned from that process. I think that's definitely going to be really useful for anyone listening who is thinking of entrepreneurship or starting their own company one day. Um, I really think he shares a lot of interesting lessons here. Yeah, and earlier we were talking about how he views his research and his entrepreneurship as one and the same. And I think an interesting thing uh, to realize is I think being at Duke has definitely um, helped him do that, you know, in many ways. I think uh, the collaboration between Duke Engineering and the Duke Medical School is just um, a really big part of why we see so many professors uh, being able to innovate and actually translate their technology into the hospital to help patients. Um, and, you know, what other direct way to do that than to, like, actually like, 3D print an implant that you can, like, put in someone, right? I mean, that's just one of the most direct ways you see that happening. So that was awesome. Absolutely. I think a lot of times people see the world of academia and startup world as completely separate. But just the conversations we've had with Dr. Gall and, and others on this podcast show that they are really very intertwined. Um, and sometimes I think for, for the best that, that both fields kind of have something to offer and when you mix them together you kind of get a really unique outcome yeah so we really hope you enjoyed the episode uh, and thanks so much for listening um, as always be sure to follow us on Instagram at after double underscore office hours. I got that right this time. <laughs> there, there we go. And follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, rate our podcasts, comment on our podcast, Google Podcasts. We're also on there as well. Uh, we we're everywhere. To, we're everywhere. We're, we're everywhere. We want to hear from you. Reach out, send us a DM, comment on our posts, and we will see you next time. <laughs>